If you enjoyed our last episode exploring people's emotional connection to place with artist and placemaker Susan Robb, then our guest today, developer Bill Parks, a placemaker of a different sort, might also keep you on the go with us for the next hour. Comparing Bill to other developers, the Seattle PI described him as a unicorn running in a herd of mules. Bill has developed the Fremont Lofts and Stonewater in Fremont and the Barton Street Lofts in White Center. And through philanthropy, his work circles the globe in such places as Wallingford Park and as far away as uh, Kenya and Mexico. Joining Bill is his son, Andy Parks, who grew up alongside Bill's vision and is currently helping him manage his current project, Lee Street Lofts. This father and son duo spans different generations and perspectives and may be good representatives of the changes happening around us. So roll up your sleeves, strap on your tool belt, and pull up your work boots as we learn about one man's vision that has formed a lifetime of practice and helped beautify our city. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you're listening to EK on the Go. Today, through the lens of two generations, we'll look at how personal and creative passion can inform designing and building new homes, how well-crafted buildings can foster community, and the role of landscape in the changing city. And stick around. At the end of the show, we'll let you know how you can join our guests for a private tour of their current project, Lee Street Lofts. Hey, I learned about your work through my career as a real estate agent, and I've always had mixed feelings helping buyers buy new homes because you really never know what you're going to get when you're selling something that's new. Um, You don't know how they're going to perform and hold up after many years down the road. So it's really the reputation of the builder that matters most to um, home buyers rather than inspections and so forth. Bill's projects, the Boulders and Green Lake and Fremont Lofts come to mind. They struck me when I first saw them and first walked into them as, as timeless and well-built. Decades later, these impressions actually were borne out, and your projects remain a place where professors of design and architecturally show up, uh, bring students from the University of Washington to look at them. In full disclosure, um, my dream came true. I'm actually been hired by Bill and Andy to help them market their next project. We'll learn more about that later in the show. So hello, Bill. Hello there. Hey, Andy. Hello. Um, What makes your project different? Why are you a unicorn in a herd of mules? I can say that I didn't have any previous development experience, so it probably helped that I was being seeking guidance more from the community than from experience. From the community, meaning neighbors in places you work? Yeah, and and the architects. I primarily worked with Johnston Architects. Okay, great. Andy, what's your perspective? Like, why? How how are your dad's projects different? I'd say a lot of it comes from his education or alternative experience with education. I come from a generation where there's a lot of organizational kids. I'm not sure if you've heard of that term before. Um, no. But my dad is definitely not what one would call an organizational kid, and I think that's benefited him. Um, so he's circumvented the people-pleasing, or rather the system-pleasing sort of orientation that a lot of people have. So is it organizational kid, like KID? Kid, yeah. So, um, what, so what is that term? Uh, I forget who wrote the book, but it's essentially this term that has been coined to represent this new generation of tech workers, often like the ones you'll see in Seattle, um, who have been kind of harvested their whole lives to please their teachers, their parents, ultimately to produce a good resume to then get a job at one of those top companies. It's a trend. It is a trend, um, but it's not one that everyone conforms to well. Um, You have to be a very high-functioning individual, obviously, to perform in those sorts of roles. Um, But there are some limitations creatively, I'd say, um, by trying to maximize efficiency or maximize your output 
all helpful things and necessary and aspects of this world. But my dad has taken a step back from worrying about maximizing efficiency and production and viewed his projects more as a form of expression. Awesome. Take us through like a favorite project and um, describe, you know, paint a picture um, of what it would be like to live there or walk through it. Well, Stonewater was kind of an interesting um, learning experience. Um, so it's a Fremont development where there's uh, an alley. Uh, there's probably 50, 60 feet of uh, elevation gain from the sidewalk to the alley. And so we met with the architect and developed a plan that conformed all the codes and brought it to the first community meeting, and they hated it. Okay. And, and the architect was Johnson Architecture? Yeah, right. Okay. And, uh, and that, why did they hate it? Because we didn't understand where their values were. And uh, there was this wonderful community of people that lived along the backside of the alley looking at our property, but they would look at trees. So they were not concerned about their view of the Olympic Mountains on the other side of the trees. They were interested in their trees. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want their trees cut down. And the city was dictating that all the garages had to be off the alley. And it became clear that um, they'd rather have us slide the project up the hill and um, put the garage underground. So I, we developed a – the whole process was fluid. My daughter Emma and I were at the orangutan exhibit. She was like five okay. or four, something like that. And then it was orangutan? At the exhibit, and she said, "You know, Daddy, you, you people would love living around this exhibit." And so we we were playing with cardboard cutouts, and the short of it is, we designed a project that was an underground parking garage and stacked twelve units, uh, so that each one was at a different elevation. Nice. And then we hired the guy that did the zoo exhibits to put on the on the roof of the garage and created a courtyard. Okay. And built uh, an exhibit uh, that was ponds and waterfalls. And people just loved it visually and they loved the white sound. And that was just a process of learning. Okay. And then who were the buyers? Um, how would you describe the people that responded to those aesthetics and choices, if you recall? Um, sure, I recall. It was, it was, they all become kind of my kids. It was uh, a very diverse group. Okay. You know, um, various ages and professions, and um, they were all people seeking a community, I'd say. Okay. So a lot of our listeners love the idea of living in a loft, so I just wanted to ask you, what is a loft, and how is it different than other forms of residential architecture? I'd say the defining feature is open space. I'm not necessarily claustrophobic, but there's something just kind of eerie about sitting in a box for an extended period of time, and to actually have a living space that has a very tall ceiling it feels a little bit more liberating. I don't know. It's not necessarily a, necessarily a spiritual experience, but it's definitely noticeable. There's more natural light, more room for art, if that's your kind of thing. Definitely my dad's forte. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you more of a creative opening other than just having a bunch of drywalled rooms. There's a lot more openness. Yeah, it's it's a term that I think is overused. I think there's a lot of uh, when lofts became popular, um, people marketing would would start marketing places with ten foot ceiling heights or even less as lofts. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure where they got their definition, but what we do is uh, create a sixteen, seventeen foot high ceiling, so you've got this 
wonderful big windows and light. And then we put a loft, which is a, a level that takes up um, 25 to 40% of that open area, uh, about halfway so that you can you can enjoy a view down below with a full 16 foot looking up, or you can be in the loft and being right in the middle of the space. Right. And then, um, Andy, you've been working with your dad on this current project, but Bill, you mentioned Emma was four or five years old when at the orangutan exhibit. So what are your memories of working with your dad, your earliest memories, or, or being on site? <laughs> I really remember playing on all of the machinery. I'm not sure if that's allowed, but that was something that my dad let me do with supervision, of course. Um, but at the end of that probably was when I was on a big-time excavator and I ended up breaking an important water pipe. Might have been the cities. I don't remember. Um, but that was a very fond memory of mine. Being a young kid, you know, you play with your Tonka trucks or whatever, but to actually go out in the field with your dad, who's your real-life superhero at that point in life. Still is, definitely. <laughs> but especially then to actually go out and play with big boy toys. So now you're working on a project with your dad? Yes. And how's that going? It's definitely a unique experience. I like to learn, but I don't necessarily like school. Um, and so to actually be out there and learning through action and talking to people that have been doing this sort of work for a long time has been extremely beneficial. Um, I also get to see my dad in a new light. I mean, he's been my dad for my whole life, obviously. But to see him actually go through the process of creating something, not just talking about it at the dinner table or something, has been very interesting for me. And then, Bill, how is it for you having your kid on site in a, in a, in a professional capacity, not just breaking water pipes? You know, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's uh, It can be humbling. You know, he a couple days ago told an architect that I was really difficult to work with. So that was kind of advance notice to a fellow who already knows me. <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> you know, so, you know, and it's interesting. He doesn't like school, but he's academically really accomplished, and, and I'm not. So there's these differences, and uh, so it's great having him around because he's, he's modern. I use flashcards, and he uses a computer. Okay. <laughs> So um, it sounds like you don't like academics. I understand you've kind of worked your way up through the building trades as a union organizer, as a tradesman, and so forth. Can, can you walk us through your training and background that brought you to development? Sure. I was a construction union, construction laborer at a high school. Where were you in high school? Uh, I went to Lincoln High School in, okay. in um, Wallingford. Okay. And then um, I did a little stint in the Army. And I did a variety of community colleges at the same time I was going through some carpentry training and, and um, became a union carpenter foreman and then a superintendent running larger projects. And after a 12-year kind of part-time effort, I got a degree in construction management from the University of Washington at 31. Okay. All and, the while you were working. Yeah, yeah, I was. And so we did large commercial projects. And really, uh, after I got my degree, I, I had job offers to reduce my pay and to go sit in an office, and it sounded horrid. Okay. And so I started my own general contracting firm, and I did that for 15 years, doing a lot of schools and fire stations and University of Washington hospital remodels, a lot of that. Uh -huh. And um, 
historic renovations. And then I was doing more paperwork than building. Uh-huh. And I started uh, real estate development in the um, early 90s, redoing houses and selling them. And then I started out um, doing Stonewater was my first development. And I looked up uh, Ray Johnston because he was an architect on a couple of historic library renovations that I did. Great. And although we bickered all the time, I liked him because he could give me answers really quickly and right. I was impatient. Okay. And then it kind of evolved from there. Got it. Okay. So at the beginning of the show, I also like to ask if, if there's a place in Seattle that it's, or in the area that inspires you, know, you. Andy, is there any spot that comes to mind? Yeah. I actually just looked it up on Wikipedia today. Um, I have this distinct memory growing up in Seattle, spending a lot of time in parks, okay. just public parks, um, which is something that not a lot of people from other cities seem to do in comparison to my Seattleite peers. And for some reason, I just have fond memories, whether it's playing, you know, U8 soccer or just going and having a picnic or going to Lake, you know, Lake Washington at Magnuson or something. Just my whole childhood, my whole life, I've had these memories of spending time in Seattle parks. Nice. Me and my five-year-old are at parks constantly, yeah. yeah. What do you do without them? Yeah. Exactly. And I looked up, there's a, <laughs> this is where the Wikipedia part comes from. Um, but I looked up this Seattle city plan in 1903. I'm probably going to butcher the last name of this guy, but I think it's the Olstrom family or something. Olmstead. Olmstead. There you go. The Olmstead plan of 1903. And I didn't realize that there was a very, very intentional effort to create this landscape architecture that linked the city through these green biomes. Um, and I looked at the list of these parks, and I've lived by one in every single house that we've stayed at. Uh, we had a house in Green Lake, right by Green Lake Park. We had a house um, on Capitol Hill, right by Volunteer Park. We had a house in Ravenna now, right by Ravenna Park. And these were all parks that were part of this plan. Awesome. Bill? I like Andy's answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like Volunteer Park. Uh-huh. You know, and I, the art museum there, the Asian art museum. Uh-huh. Okay. So getting back to development, because of the complexity involved, developers have to collaborate. Engineers, architects, landscape designers, so many other people. So you mentioned you worked with Ray and Mary Johnson, a well-known Seattle residential architect over the years. I was just curious... Um, what other key people have you found, like Ray and Mary, that you've kind of kept with you or have become part of your palette of sort of team members that you rely upon? You know, there's there's certainly a lot of tradespeople, relationships that you gain. Um, we have um, Dave Schneider, who, who went through a carpenter apprenticeship program with us in the mid-'80s. Still with you. He's He came, he's up on Lee Street. Um, you know, there's just... It's hard to find people who are highly skilled, mm -hmm. but there's you know, plumbers and electricians and people that you, you gain a certain element of respect. You know, who they work for can change. Yeah. But, um, but you keep them with you as, yeah. Yeah, we do. Projects. And you've also developed kind of a very specific vernacular of materials, including landscape and, you know, physical materials. So can you just share how that, how that evolved? In other words, there's consistent patterns, even though your projects are different and seem to turn, you know, you know, adjust for their site. There's also like a some consistency of materials. I see like rocks and steel and so forth. So how did that evolve? Just the enthusiasm to to find raw materials and to be able to use them and to have the freedom. Uh, one of the 
key motivations in being a developer is you, you get the freedom of picking what you build and how you build it. And um, so we have a lot of concrete. So I love concrete. And uh, Why do you love concrete? It's sculptural. You know, you, you can do things. It's strong. It lasts. Um, it's a great material. Okay. You can play with it. We, we have some exposed concrete walls, and we'll get to expose veins of aggregate by grinding and exposing it so you don't normally have on projects. Okay. And then um, I love going out to Miranakos. I used to be able to go out there like at, in the summer at 5.30 in the morning and hop the fence, and I'd tag rocks. What's Miranakos? It's a landscape rock. It's about 25 acres out near Preston. Okay. Right off I-90, we could um, flag boulders, and I'd take pictures of them. I'd sketch them, and I would spend months uh, saving these boulders and finding places to put them. Okay. So we had, I don't know, 80 or 90 tons on the boulders project. Okay. And, Amazing. Oh. You know, I don't remember on Stonewater. Uh, some of those were actually carved rocks that were over the courtyard or the garage. And then up on Lee Street, I think we're going to hit 30 tons. Wow. Okay. You know, so you'll see that there's rock, <laughs> there's, there's rock set up there. And I love rocks that are flat uh-huh. uh, because we don't have a lot of area. It's, it's a very high density. Uh-huh. The Lee Street lots. The Lee Street. So yep. I can get a rock that's five to seven feet wide and seven to nine feet tall. Okay. And only two feet thick. A lot of tonnage can fit into a relatively tight space. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And then you can put that flat up against a shoring wall and, and it creates a wonderful palette. Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so who wouldn't like it? You get to pick the rocks out and you get to set them with a crane. Uh-huh. And uh, I've got one more rock setting that'll happen uh, into January. At the and what's beautiful is no one's going to move those suckers once they're in. They're probably done. So it's for kind a of a permanent for many many years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they are. And then and then we got to put. Um, I actually got some of these flat rocks and had them come in and saw cut them. Okay. So that I could fit them tightly and create uh, window wells, so that you look through the window and you see these these rocks that are six feet tall. Uh huh. So it's it's clearly fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And any comments on materials? Also were... a lot of steel, I would say, um, especially with Lee Street Lofts. I have picked up more steel beams than I would <laughs> care to remember. But it's it definitely adds to an aesthetic of industrial, but not dirty industrial. When I think of industrial steel, I think of oil and stuff. Uh-huh. But it's interesting when you look at polished steel or stainless steel, there's so many different moods that different kinds of steel carry but it also adds to that loft feeling i i don't like i keep going back to the box analogy but i don't like feeling like i'm in a box with gypsum wallboard all around you right um so to have different colors and weight exactly it looks hefty it looks Uh sturdy there's Uh something assuring about looking around you and seeing a structure that doesn't look like it's going to blow over permanence yeah 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 on the steel we so we bought semi-loads of steel and shipped it over to Lake Cleelum where there's a shop and a couple guys that are friends of mine. Okay. And um, so they're fabricating steel and contributing their own ideas. And then we ship it back or we ship it to be galvanized or to powder coated. So it's it's a real process. And then you're, you're oftentimes physically, you know I, know, I know I hear that you're out physically schlepping the steel Picking it up, and you're de- you deal directly with a, a lot of the people. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm picking up the steel and delivering it, and doing sketches and doodles, and um, 
and then the, the steel bar joists, you know, those, those get fabricated and uh, we got to get those painted and installed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a different process. So another theme is travel. It seems like you tra- you like to travel. Mm-hmm. Like to, it seems like you've brought your kids hither and thither for since the time we were kids. And, I'm, and then it seems like you bring back a lot of the ideas or some of the ideas within your projects are a function of the site, but also from ideas or things that you've seen while traveling. That's correct. And can you give us an example? Because I, when I travel, I see things in a new light. It's really refreshing because you just see things differently and freshly. But you go one step further and bring those insights back into – and then you – create new things out of what you've seen, it seems like. Yeah, I would say um, the Fremont Lofts comes to mind. So our family went to Italy for a couple months or something, and uh, Andy was young, I think two or three. But that project was, the concept for it was sort of like being around some of the, in Umbria and and, uh, Tuscany. It was like in Cortona, and you'd see these, really narrow, windy little streets and tight little driveways from a, a different time. Mm-hmm. And so Fremont Lofts is this sort of S through drive that goes through um, not quite as much topography as Stonewater, but maybe 35 or 40 feet. Right. Very steep. Very steep. And yeah. then there'd be these steep little driveways and people who who live there, it feels European. There's people those sold in 01 and most of the people still live there, yep. you know, and um, very cool community. They're very tight. And um, but, and so what did the this fabrication of that street and the design do to contribute to that tightness and the people, the fact that people don't want to leave? Because I'm sure it's um, not an accident because most people own, Americans own a, live in a house, I think, for an average of maybe six or seven years now, not 17 years. Yeah. My experience at the Fremont Lofts is... Uh, people were attracted to it uh, because of the architecture and kind of the aesthetics. Yeah. And then as they moved in, because they were enthused with those styles, mm-hmm. they got to know their neighbors in a way they hadn't previously experienced. Because although there was small little areas that could be private, for the most part, uh, people were thrown together. It was a common space. Mm-hmm. That, that roadway. Yeah, the yeah. roadway. And it was, a pe- it was a place to gather that you would walk up this and come out of your garage and you'd, you'd have this natural interaction with your neighbors okay. and, and they became friends. Okay. So there's been a kind of a common conversation happening in the media in Seattle about how a lot of Seattle's new development looks kind of the same. We're obviously in a very flush economy, slowing down a little bit, but still... Many, many people moving here. Lots of new apartment buildings and housing all over the neighborhoods. Lots of buildings being torn down and rebuilt. But it, the, the comment is it all kind of looks the same. Do you agree? I do. Okay. Andy? I agree. Okay. And what do you think about that? It's sort of a sad tribute, actually. You know, there's um, – I'm not going to use names, but there's a, there's a lot of development that uses the same plan over and over again, and they'll expand it or contract it. And uh, it's about getting a building permit as quickly as possible. Are we talking about apartments, condos, townhomes, single-family homes? Uh, most, mostly townhomes, but apartments fit into the same. It's, um, you know, consumers are used to seeing certain products. Uh, banks are used to appraising certain products. Um developers and their all of their subcontractors is so much easier 
if you build the same box over and over again, you don't have to think too hard. Sure. And it's a great financial model, mm-hmm. uh, but it avoids the public process, which is something that um, there's a lot of animosity against developers who um, do things strictly for money. Mm-hmm. They don't want to deal with the public. They're looked upon adversarially. Mm-hmm. And there's a missed opportunity. Uh, so tell us about that. I'm so curious. Like, how do you engage the pro- the public? You know, how have you? You gave one example with Stonewater, but are there others that are, uh, you know, pithy? Oh, for sure. I mean, we, we took over a project in Ballard where on 65th and 24th, there was another developer who created, a, I want to say, a 40-unit project. And uh, it appalled the neighbors. Why? Uh, because they felt like it was out of scale, they didn't like it. And I guess if there's a positive from that, it was the first time it gave the neighbors something to to meet about, and they had never met each other. So all of a sudden you had this group and you had all these shrink the condo signs all over the place. Mm. And and they opposed the project, and then eventually um, the person that owned the property uh, hadn't sold it. It was just an option to the developer, and so I ended up buying that property. Did the developer want to get away from the community? Um, I think he was just really worn out. He was he was he was a nice guy, uh-huh. and so I ended up meeting with these people uh, in coffee shops around Ballard, mm-hmm. and asking them what they were concerned about. And then we ended up um, buying more property. So we ended up buying uh, and creating a ninety nine unit with two levels of parking below grade and a grocery store. What are the names of these buildings? Uh, this is Ballard Public. Okay. And um, I asked him what kind of businesses they wanted in there. And they wanted the green market, just like was up on Sunset Hill. And kind of coincidentally, we had just bought that property. Okay. And uh, and then ended up buying the green market business. Okay. Wow. You know, so it was like all these cards and things kind of fit together. But yeah. I wouldn't have known any of those things had I not engaged in a process and listened to people as to what they really wanted. There was a few things that if they felt like they had some control and they did have some input, I couldn't do everything Mm -hmm. for them, but Mm -hmm. at least they had a sense that they were getting a fairly good, at least somebody that was willing not only to listen, but I was implementing some of their ideas. Awesome. You know, and that that was a process that um, it took a long time. I mean, I wanna say from the time I started it was like three years. Uh-huh. So I'm definitely not a production guy. So we had Norm Rice in here a few months ago, and he was oh. just talking about the Seattle process and oh, yeah. you know how lambasted it has right. been since the 80s and 90s. But but he always begins just by listening. You know, as a, in, this is politics, not development. Right. But just the painful process and the time that you have to invest to listen, and then you can begin to maybe implement something um, as long as people at least have the sense that the person doing the implementation has listened. Right. You know, so... Andy, I'm curious your, uh, your perspective because you're from a younger generation and you're sort of newly re-arrived in the city. Um, a lot of the kind of opposition to change is probably generational. It's people that have been here, um, like your dad and myself. I grew up in Tacoma and I'm just shocked at the amount of change. And you've been away for a while and then you're also just a younger generation. So people moving here probably don't feel the same, same emotional connection to the place. They're really looking toward the, the future of what it's going to be like. And so how does all this sit with you? And how is that different than maybe for your father? Well, I'd say the biggest difference is the economies that we live in. 
by no means do I know much about the economy, but um, I was going to major in economics. Um, and a lot of what we focused on were the metrics that define economic growth. So you went to Pittsburgh College near Los Angeles? Yeah, one of the Claremont colleges. And then I noticed their core values are social responsibility, intercultural understanding, interdisciplinary learning, and environmental sustainability. So very value-focused, whether or not that shows up in the curriculum. Yes, I think it does. Um, It depends, obviously, on the classes you take. But we did, at least in the introductory economics courses and in some of the intermediate-level ones, we talked about what defines growth and are things like the GDP valuable? What do they tell us or what do they omit? Um, And I think especially when it comes to development, um, there's usually a negative connotation because it's all quantitatively driven, you know, X amount of square feet. Not to say that you can't do that and have a good product, but it's usually just viewed as a function. You know, how can we put in the lowest costs to get the highest return? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is kind of a necessity with the turnover of jobs that we have. You know, people aren't having careers as much anymore. You're hopping from company to company usually. So I think it all kind of fits together to remove this sense of responsibility for creating a wholesome product. And you see that happening in development? Yeah. I think it's also becoming obviously more expensive to live in Seattle. I mean, my dad talks about how he started making a living and he bought his first house for less than $100,000 in Seattle, which is just absurd for me to think about. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads us to a topic that I'd love to talk about with you both. Um, you know, I feel like in Seattle, something shifted in the 1980s, or maybe it was the 70s. You know, we have these different building cycles. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, we had these large towers that came about during that boom. And most of them had, did not hold up at all. These were huge, big mega projects, two to 300 apartment units and so forth. Many got wrapped in plastic within a decade or two and then had to be taken apart and basically put together again from the outside. In one infamous example, there was the 25-story McGuire building in the Belltown neighborhood, downtown Seattle. Construction finished in 2001, and then the owner had to demolish the property in 2010 um, because it, w- it was apparently too flawed to even fix this multi-million dollar building. And the irony is that it was for the pension fund of the Carpenters Union that funded the project and whose insurance probably had to pay out for the reconstruction. The building had all the latest technology but it couldn't stand up to the basic elements like water and big chunks of concrete were falling down onto the pavement below. Um, so I guess the question is why aren't, you know, why is it so challenging today to build things that last um, maybe compared to the, the twenties and thirties, the forties, the fifties. And my thinking, it has to do with the trades, like how construction occurs where there's a lot, you know, there's the different people are disconnected. The tradesmen, the people providing the money are not within the same community. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely a separation between, um, you know, I'm familiar with the building you're talking about, the pension fund. And um, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't the carpenter's fault. Well, the other thing is that in terms of sustainability is that I'm, I learned recently that it's con- that construction, I, I thought that like automobiles drive climate change and, uh, you know, have the biggest it's development construction has, is the biggest polluter in terms of impact on climate change so there's big impacts obviously when you build a whole building there's a huge climate impact and then to take it down and have to dump all that stuff it's very wasteful yeah it's a complicated uh, there was uh, the construction industry um, used to predominantly it work your way up through the ranks and uh, those that became were carpenters and 
were literate and were good at math. They could get moved to the office. Maybe they were foremen. And so they had a working knowledge of the assembly of buildings and the materials. And now you have a separation uh, so that predominantly, like the vast majority of those who administrate uh, construction companies are people who don't have field experience. Okay. They're... Um, they're educated in construction management or they're architects or engineers and, and um, they'll do construction estimates based on historical data, uh, which is great if you're building the same box over and over again. But if you're building a unique product and you're, it's, it's a one-time thing, mm -hmm. um, there isn't that historical data. So that would drive toward uniformity, right? In order oh. to build something that at least doesn't pull down, you can't really have too much creativity. It's too much risk. Yeah. You know, so developers don't want to do it. So it creates some flaws in construction for sure. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to meet pricing. You know, the developers and whoever's building, they want to get things done and there may not be any money mm -hmm. to, to do anything more. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think there's much better quality control today than there was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. What happened to cause that to sort of circle back, just the liability? Yeah, and I think to the city's credit, there's envelope consultants now and there's a science of engineering and um, there's some positive things that are occurring. Mm -hmm. They're not always aesthetically applied in a way that's that exciting, mm -hmm. uh, but water intrusion issues are um, you know, significantly reduced. I don't know by how much, but mm -hmm. there's a lot more money. That mm -hmm. The downside of it is, is it's great that the buildings are being built better, mm -hmm. but they're a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So, which is another issue. There's some tension between affordability and the actual cost to construct things has gone up significantly. Okay. So I know we've had prior conversations outside of this discussion about affordable housing. It's something that you actually would like to kind of commit to looking forward is to possibly explore ways to do that. So where does that desire come from? Well, you you want to be of service. I mean, it's a sad thing that teachers and I have a soft spot in my heart for them and, you know, social workers. And, you know, so you, you wonder what can you do? Well, people have to learn to, to live with smaller, more efficient spaces. And Andy actually had great ideas, you know. So if you... You don't want to uh, eliminate the creative piece of it. Right. Because you, you, overall, you want to create something where people are going to do good things and they're excited about where they're living. Right. So clearly you believe where you live inspires your work and it really matters. Yeah. That apartment house that I mentioned that we built had 99 units and there was 87 different unit types. Wow. You know, and they were, there were 67 lofts. And why the variation? I understand generally you find it more inspiring, but... Like, how did that happen? Um, because it wasn't a cube. It was a it was a U shape, and it had another courtyard and another water feature. And um, by the time you're done uh, structurally supporting whatever you need to, to then the the spaces aren't uniform. Okay. So you have to fit creative spaces in with the space you have allowed. But Andy had great ideas, and I loved listening. To what are some thing. of them, Andy? Just in general, how excited I am for the light rail. Um, and looking into the zoning, and I went to New York City for the first time two summers ago, and I was blown away at how integrated the different neighborhoods were around their subway system. Okay. Um, because it was much more affordable to create 
you know, these apartments that were close to public transportation and people could go to their jobs and everything they needed to live was accessible from these kind of far reaches. You know, you could live in Brooklyn and get to Manhattan or anywhere. No concerns over parking. No concerns over parking, exactly, (laughs) which is going to be important coming up here, if not already in Seattle. Um, And just taking that back to Seattle when I came home, you know, we live right next to where there's going to be a new station um, by Roosevelt High School. Right. And just feeling as a 20-year-old how excited I am to have, you know, access to much more of the city without having to drive. Um, And then thinking about, oh, how can you build around this? Where is it feasible to do that? And what kind of economic structures would you want to create? Mixed use. um, How would you finance it? Would you sell them? Would you rent them? Um, And so I ultimately, my fantasy, I don't know if it's feasible yet, is to have some kind of medium-sized mixed-use building with apartments up top of varying structures, you know, maybe not 87 different types, but to have smaller efficient spaces, larger luxury type units, and then also have, say, a lower office unit for a nonprofit. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, Roosevelt, it's amazing because there's so many cranes, right? It's a neighborhood, but there's just cranes, cranes, cranes. Yeah, you say so different. Yeah, you talked about how I (laughs) were two different generations and how the city has been very different for us. But even I, growing up, don't recognize aspects of the city. I mean, I've lived in this house in Ravenna for the last, I guess, 14 or 15 years now. But that whole neighborhood is completely different. Walking down 65th westbound by Roosevelt High School, there are apartment buildings everywhere. So just seeing that kind of blows my mind. I can't imagine being my dad's age. You know, we go driving somewhere and he points at a building and says, oh, you know, back when I was a kid, this was, you know, so-and-so. You look at it now and it's some pho place or you know, sandwich shop with <laughs> 10 stories of bougie apartments above it. <laughs> there was an old Sears department store and now it's Whole Foods and, you know, it's it's different. A lot, a lot more people. So I'm kind of watching the Lee Street Lofts unfold up close and kind of that project and just your work in general reminds me of, um, do, are you familiar with Lewis Mumford? He was, a, uh, he was a contemporary of Frank Lloyd Wright and he kind of an urbanist. And he, he said, what defines us among animals is not the tools that we use, but language and communication, kind of sharing ideas with one another. Um, and he had he came up with the Greek term techne, which means not just technology, but art, skill, and dexterity, and the interplay between kind of the social milieu and innovation. And um, kind of talked about human a form of humanism that's based on the organic, the physical, the idea of that we need to set limitations on human, on sort of what we do as a function of our physical, you know, being physically... Uh, you know, our, our size and so forth. So air quality, food, the quality of water, the comfort of spaces, all of these things had to be respected if people were going to thrive and feel happy in a place. Now I think we call that livability, maybe. So I'm just wondering, sort of the human scale. I mean, one of the things that's, that's shocking as we go through the city is the scale is so different. It, it's kind of uncomfortable. But one of the things I see in your project is you build, uh, maybe it's the landscape, the, sort of the proportions of the spaces themselves, not overdoing them. Um, maybe the variation of spaces and unit types, like with the Ballard project. So I'm just wondering, you know, to what degree the physical nature of humans, you know, our need for clean air and comfort sort of figures into the work that you do, Bill. Oh. And having limitations on what we do rather than just going for the biggest, the cheapest. Right. Andy, Andy, Andy has a thought. <laughs> I do. Um, 
when I watched the video that your team created on LeeStreetLoss.com, um, there's an interview of Ray Johnston, and he talks about how my dad has to feel drawn to a, an area, a neighborhood, a community before he creates a plan to actually do anything, develop anything, buy anything. Um, so there's a human being that he's refer- referencing and kind of building toward. Yes, and, and kind of the, a larger feeling of a community. You know, when you want to create something, you're not just thinking about how many floors it is or, you know, what's the square footage of this, how many bathrooms, how many bedrooms, you know, those are all things that are put on websites, sure. But when it comes to living somewhere, you know, you need to think about, like you said, the quality of life, the livability, you know, what amenities are around there, not just necessarily on paper, but, you know, if you're, how, how are you going to feel when you wake up and go on a walk around your neighborhood? You know, what kinds of community bonding sorts of events are there? You know, are there existing relationships? Is it an environment where that's conducive for more relationships to be formed? Um, I think that's something that's important to consider, especially when you're trying to upzone things and your city's growing. You know, if you just try to create as many units as possible, just because there's people living close to each other doesn't necessarily mean that they're connecting with each other more, um, especially with technology, you know, with social media, people are distancing themselves as they're living closer to each other. Well, like the homeless crisis is an example where I think there's just so much hostility among people that have homes against people without homes, if you read a lot of, you know, and that's just like so tragic because um, these are people, you know. Yes. That's the world we're in, but it's really disconnected right now. Yeah. Yeah, but how can the home, how can the neighborhoods that we build and the places that we design, you know. You have to set a precedent for sure. Yeah, and so, and that's maybe the unicorn among the mules is that the it's not just bottom line driven. For Bill, it's tailored to people. Yeah, it's designed yeah. by thinking 20 years down the line, you know, what life will I have lived centered around this location? You know? it. It's not just, is my housewarming party going to look fabulous? It's, mm-hmm. is my dinner party in 20 years with family and friends going to be as warm as I want it to be tomorrow? So with social media and technology and, you know, people are posting pictures of their food and, you know, everything, you know, <laughs> so, but that's the image, right? It's yeah. not necessarily what's happening. So another kind of element of Lewis Mumford was that technology and progress should not become a runaway train. It's not the technology that really will lead us that human needs to act kind of as a break on that. So I'm wondering if, is technology a runaway train or is it something that's bringing us closer together? Um, You know, it's a bigger question beyond building, but the building has a big impact. It has a huge impact. Um, I also was a computer science minor in the works. I haven't graduated yet, but um, a lot of, thankfully, what we studied wasn't just the, the core content of programming or mathematical problem solving, but, you know, what are the impacts of technology? Um, exactly this question. Is it, has it gone too far? Will it go too far? I don't have a definitive answer, but there definitely has been an issue with unchecked progress. I think Seattle is kind of a good example of that with our homeless crisis, you know, We've had so much development and so much economic growth that we've never stopped to think, is this the right kind of growth? Where is this growth being channeled? You know, who's receiving this growth? I don't think that any project that we're necessarily doing is going to solve those issues, but it's definitely something that you take into consideration, you know, not just following the latest trends with design and building, but trying to actually look beyond it to create your own vision. Well, I know Bill has supported lots of organizations, so I just wanted to kind of walk through these. Wallingford Park, Meridian Playground. There we go with parks and playgrounds. Yep. Uh, Nestuka Sanctuary, Family Works, Coyote Central, Jubilee Women's Center, Habitat for Humanity, Chief Seattle Club now, um, which is a near and dear to me. 
and then overseas there's other projects. So I'm just curious, you know, how that philanthropic work fits into your path professionally and development. And is it like a separate thing? Is it, how does that sort of unfold from your vision? It folds in nicely. We've gotten involved in um, doing work primarily for physical improvements um, for a variety of nonprofits. And uh, it sort of started about 30 years ago, I think, maybe more. And um, somebody would volunteer me for something, and then I would uh, seek out and I'd mooch from uh, other people in the trades. And so we would just build upon that experience until the projects got bigger. Okay. You know, so um, Coyote Central. Uh, What's Coyote Central? It's a middle school arts program. Since there isn't much arts in the, in the school, so these kids uh, are able to go um, and learn how to cook. There's a professional kitchen, so chefs come in and teach the kids how to cook. Where is that? It's down on 23rd and Cherry near yeah. Garfield. Nice. It was started by a couple of teachers, and they're, I don't know if they've announced it or yet. It doesn't matter. They, they bought another building. They're out in Lake City. Okay. So we're going to help them <laughs> renovate that. Heard it here for now. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it laces in well. And the thing that happens is, is that you, we have these relationships with people who are all focused about money. You know, and, and whether they're supplying concrete or lumber or they're plumbers. or, And when we when we come together and, and, uh, and, and building inspectors, I had building inspectors volunteer so I could have them <laughs> sign off on our inspections on Sunday, you know. And uh, that was nice. great because they're uh-huh. always a pain in the posterior. So it was nice to kind of get to know them in a very human way. Uh-huh, sure. And so it creates a sense of community um, that's closer. We have a, a greater sense of appreciation and humor for each other now. Okay. So I was touched that you described yourself as like the handyman at Chief Seattle Club. It's an organization that's close to our family. Um, so I was curious how you got involved. It's also an amazing work of architecture and story. So what, what you, how did you get involved with Chief Seattle? And are you the handyman or what do you do there? Uh, Steve Trainer uh, is somebody I met at the university and uh, in the construction management. He was a student and um, I've known him outside work for a while and he and Trisha kind of promoted that. I don't know the dollar amount, but they, I don't know if they bought the building and gave it to him. I I don't know. But anyway, I volunteered to help. And so, um, and Andy's worked there Uh and some of his friends. um, So they would, uh, we're on a tight budget. And so we would come in and do improvements. And uh, there's always something, it's an amazing facility. Awesome. So um, I always ask our guests to bring in something physical um, to share that inspires them or means something to them. And what do you have? Um, I was I kind of touched on this earlier, but I brought in a picture of me and my childhood best friend at Woodland Park, um, which is where I have some of my fondest memories growing up. And just all the time, like I said, spending in public parks and just the kind of infrastructure that's around them. Um, I guess that was a community that was important to me. I always, you know, those are the few times my parents would let me roam around the city alone is when I was with my friends and we were around a park or doing something, you know. And then, Bill, did you bring anything in? Yeah, I I just got this little piece of wood um, that I carved on. And so... Can I see? Yeah. And so I grew up in the neighborhood here, so I used to sell cans of peanuts to go to Camp Orkila. And what's the Camp Orc Island? It's a YMCA camp up on Orcas Island. Love it. And um, 
So let's see. I'm 68, and I did this when I was 10. Okay. So that was 58 years ago, and I still have this silly thing. And, wow. I, and I figured out that the knife I w- they were giving me was dull, and the U, uh, which was the Madrona wood that I have here, is super hard. So I would bring this, and it w- I'd kind of hang out with it. Um, so to me, it's kind of symbolic of kind of my life, really. Wow. I mean, I was able to kind of maneuver around the city, and, and it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Did you describe yourself as a dull blade? well Andy there are times when I am rather dull (laughs) great so looking forward as we wrap up so your next project is Lee Street Lofts Um, these will be I think higher end homes on Queen Anne on 3rd Avenue North and Lee Street anything you shout out about those Uh, only that they're on 3rd Avenue and Lee not 3rd Avenue North 3rd Avenue got it okay And any themes from your previous work that are showcased there are sort of fun or or divergences? Andy? Big windows. (laughs) (laughs) I just picked up a big glass pane to be installed. Man, those things are heavy. And steel as well. But I think the big selling point for me, at least, what I look forward to is standing up on the roofs. Great. Yeah, these colossal uh, lofts up at the top of Queen Anne. So um, if you want to get a private tour with Bill Parks and Andy Parks, our guest today of Lee Street Lofts, Send an email to Edward K at EKREG with the word lofts in the title, and we'll set this up for you as soon as they're completed, which will be in the spring of 2019. For the next episode, uh, we'll meet with another Seattle-based real estate developer, Scott Shapiro, a graduate of Harvard Business School. Scott heads Eagle Rock Ventures, where he pulls investors together into remarkable properties to produce well-loved gathering places, places like Melrose Market, the Lodges on Vashon, San Fermo Restaurant, the Harvard Exit, Queen Anne Beer Hall, the American Hotel Hostel in the International District, Linwood Skate and Bowl, a perennial multi-generational favorite gathering place that's refreshed by Scott, the Cha-Cha Lounge in LA, Cafe Press in Stumptown near Seattle U, and so on and so forth. So join us next time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. We're excited to share with you that our podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play. For more information, visit our website, ekreg.com, and you'll also find links to Bill Parks and Andy Parks' business and uh, some photographs of the objects they brought in today. As always, send your questions or requests to Edward K. at ekreg, and if there's a place in Seattle that matters to you, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you for turning in. Join us next time to hear from others like Bill and Andy Parks about places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you. <laughs>